Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Hey, everyone. Thanks for subscribing. I cannot wait to get to this week's show. We're going to be talking about Russians and soccer and the FBI and money laundering and the mob and, of course, Donald Trump and how they all kind of come together in a crazy, crazy, crazy story. But first, we have to ask, how much sleep did you get last night? Getting enough sleep and waking up on time are not easy, but it can be. The sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help. They have the widest selection of America's best-selling brands, and they have beds for every budget, every body, and every body. Get it? Every body and every body? Okay. Anyway, get to uh, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, and you can save 10% with the code PODCAST10. That's podcast one zero. And if online shopping isn't your thing, Mattress Firm stores are in your neighborhood, so better sleep is right around the corner, literally. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. All right, my guest today is Ken Bensinger. He wrote a amazing book called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal, which, of course, is the soccer scandal. Uh, lots of fascinating, crazy shit in here. Uh, I'm just going to start cursing straight away because there's no other way to begin this. It's, you've got Russia, you've got Christopher Steele, you've got FBI, um, uh, like, I mean, mob-related, Donald Trump. So let's actually start... Uh, first, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, let's start uh, in the place that we're all the most familiar with these days, uh, Trump Tower, where the story actually begins. So how does this actually end up uh, becoming this massive scandal that, that, that we, now, we all, now all know about? Yeah, so that's right. The Trump Tower, as we're learning every single day, is the uh, center of gravity of the entire universe, and nothing that happens anywhere doesn't start or end there. Specifically bad things too. Yeah, all the bad stuff. So in this case, um, this starts with something that has nothing to do with soccer, but has some interesting characters. So if you want to start from the beginning, um, the FBI was investigating uh, an illegal gambling ring inside the Trump Tower. There was an illegal poker room happening in the uh, Trump Tower, and it was connected. It was financed by some guys who were running an illegal online gambling ring, and that was financed by a Russian... uh, crime lord, uh, what they call a vor in Russia. A vor? Vor. That's like Mafia Don in Russian, apparently. And this guy um, uh, was running it, he was financing it, and he's in Russia. He'd already been uh, indicted in many years earlier because he was um, bribing uh, figure skating judges at the 2002 <laughs> Winter Olympics. And um, uh, they never got their hands on him for that. And now the FBI is investigating him again. Um, for those of you who've been in the movies, there's a movie called Molly's Game that came yep. out recently. Mm-hmm. Molly's Game is based on what that case became. Got so it. Molly Bloom was playing in that poker or was organizing that poker room that was connected to this 
the movie doesn't have anything about the Russian, really. But so, did Trump know about this 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 ring inside the building, or we don't know? We don't know. I mean, look, probably the, the building. There's been some great articles out there where they just sort of identify all the criminals inside the Trump Tower. Um, there was one I saw somewhere that was like a floor by floor look at every criminal who lived inside the Trump Tower. And so, you know, if you're on the 43rd floor, here's who the criminal is, right? <laughs> Um, so I don't know if Trump knew or not, but he was friends with all these people, right? And he hung out with them. And so this game is going on. The FBI is um, investigating it. They're actually set up wiretaps and they're listening to it and, um, and really all, all over it. Um, and it ultimately brings down a lot of people, including like one of New York's most prominent art dealers who was involved in it and a bunch of other people. But at this point, this is 2009, 2010. They're working on the case. They haven't indicted anybody yet. And the uh, FBI's um, Eurasian Organized Crime Squad is running the case. And that squad has a new supervisor who's a guy who spent his career doing um, Italian mafia stuff in Brooklyn. Um, and this agent um, was, you know, an old school FBI guy who does that kind of stuff. And so like gaudy, things like that. He, his specialty was the Genovese crime family, right? So he did all, the way they do that in New York, they actually have a Genovese squad and a Bonanno squad and a Gambino squad. He was in the Genovese squad. But yeah, like the gaudy kind of stuff. And I think his big takedown before then is he, like, busted the corrupt New York City school bus ring. Like, there was an organized crime situation with all the school buses in New York. Of course there was. Of course, right? <laughs> so um, so this guy, he's running this squad. And meanwhile, Bob Mueller is the head. Robert Mueller is the head of the FBI. This is in the post-9-11 era, and the emphasis is anti-terrorism. And all these squads that are doing traditional organized crime are getting, are getting squeezed financially. And Mueller is saying, look, we need you to find crimes that are different. Otherwise, I'm not going to give you resources. And the crimes I want are international money laundering, transnational crimes, because I think those fund terrorism, and that's what we're going to go after. So this guy, this FBI agent, is interested in this case because he's got a Russian in Russia sending money to the U.S., getting money back from the U.S. It's transnational. So he's working that crime. And he goes to London because if you want to know about Russia, you go to London. I mean, there's an incredible, I think the number one, city for Russians outside of Russia is London in terms of population, in terms of experts who know about it, finance, everything. It's in London. In terms of spies who almost get killed or do get killed. That's right. In Litvinenko and up, it's all happening in London. Um, and so uh, he goes to London, is introduced to a lot of people. And one of the people he's introduced to is a recently retired MI6 agent by the name of Christopher Steele. So that's Christopher Steele of the Steele dossier. Correct. Okay. Same guy. So Christopher Steele at this point is not famous. He's just kind of a very ordinary looking dude who hangs out near the, his office is near the Victoria tube station in central London. Um, and he's just built this new firm called Orbis and they're going to sell intelligence to corporations, right? And um, they sit down and they meet and they talk about uh, this Vor, this uh, Russian crime leader whose name I unfortunately can't pronounce, but his nickname is Taiwanchik. And the reason it's that, it's some kind of off-color, sort of vaguely racially insultingly uh, diminutive term in Russian because he's from the eastern part of Russian, Russia, so he has sort of Asian features. And it, it means something like he looks like he's Taiwanese. <laughs> um, and uh, they talk about that and, uh, and go about their, way, their different ways. Meanwhile, Christopher Steele has uh, gotten one of his first clients, right? And one of his first clients is the English bid to win the rights to host the 2018 World Cup. And um, this, it's a paying client. They've hired him and a bunch of other uh, intelligence-type people and, and um, consultants to help them with a the bid. And his job, uh, Christopher Steele's job, is to find out information about Russia, the reason he's supposed to do that is because Russia is also competing for the right to host the 2018 World Cup, as are Spain and Portugal, and um, 
Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, so England thinks it's the, it's the perfect choice for this. They haven't hosted a World Cup since 1966. It's the country that invented soccer. It has incredible infrastructure. It has airports, hotels, stadiums, everything you'd need. It's primed. It has like a soccer obsessive audience. It has the most successful professional soccer league in the world, etc. Um, Russia, on the other hand, is like has like a terrible pro league. It has no real soccer legacy. It has awful falling apart stadiums, bad airports, bad highways. There's sort of nothing on the ledger sheet that looks like they should host it. Um, but to cover their asses, they hire Chris Deal to, to see if anything's going on. Well, sometime in the period of early 2010, after uh, Christopher Steele meets with this FBI agent, um, he starts to hear rumors that that something's funny happening with a Russian bid. Um, he's hearing that Putin, who uh, Vladimir Putin, who famously dislikes soccer, he's a hockey guy, um, is suddenly very interested in the bid. He's involved. He's paying attention. Um, uh, is is really sort of taking control of it. Wants things to happen. And he and Christopher Steele starts hearing that there's maybe bribery happening. Maybe people who with the Russians bribing FIFA. Right. So FIFA, the way FIFA determines at this, at this period in time, the World Cup is its executive committee of 24 people. Get, meet in a private room and they vote, right? And so these 24 men are the most powerful men in the sport. And the question is, are they- It's all men. At that point, it was all men. Yes, it's all men. And um, there was one American um, who we're, we'll probably get to, but he was also living in the Trump Tower, of course. And then um, <laughs> and it's sort of a, a scattering of people from around the world. And um, the question is, are they being bribed? And one of the guys later admits that he received a painting from the Russian bid. Um, and there had been speculation that they were, they were literally taking paintings from the Hermitage and giving them to FIFA voters. This guy says, when they asked him, when FIFA later asked him about the painting, he says, yeah, it's true, I got a painting, but it was really ugly, so it doesn't count. Right? So, what's, so what is at stake, before we get to kind of all of the crazy shit that happens, what, how much money can a country like Russia, I mean, if you, if you think about the World Cup, is it just the fans that they, you know, that come and visit and therefore you get all the, uh, the resources from tourism? Like, what is the amount of money that a com- country can make from this event that takes place every few years? So I think there's kind of two reasons why a country would want to host a World Cup. One is because they want to make a lot of money. And the other is because they want something else. And I think Russia falls in the other category. Those who want a lot of money are like the U.S. or England, for that matter, where they have the infrastructure in, pre- in place, so the, sp- the spend to get ready for, ready for it's going to be small, and because they're organized, they're going to make a lot of money from ticket sales and from local licensing and from selling T-shirts and merchandise and that kind of stuff. Um, and w- the track record of that is strong. The U.S. had the World Cup in 1994. It was incredibly financially successful. A huge amount of money was generated, huge profits. M- hundreds of millions? Hundreds, I mean, I think that one was... Uh, I think the profit was like six hundred million or something. Wow. That's um, uh, and that was you know many years ago. Um, these days, estimates are much much higher, right? Um, the other reason, though, a, a country would have it is because they want the political um, influence that brings. They want the PR essentially from it. And uh, in fact, there's many countries that have lost a ton of money in the World Cup. South Africa and Brazil are good examples of countries that have hosted the World Cup, and it's been financially ruinous for the countries, right? Brazil, as we've probably seen, is now just a financial black hole, completely chaotic nightmare between the, the World Cup and the Olympics. It was terrible for their economy. South Africa built all these stadiums they'll never use again. They spent some shocking percentage of their GDP just preparing for the World Cup and wow. will never recoup it. But those countries wanted the PR hit. They wanted to be able to tell the world we can hold the most important sporting event with the most eyeballs and get the most attention, right? And I think that's where Russia viewed it. That's what they saw it as. I remember at the time that Putin was not 
president. He had stepped down from president, was prime minister, because he'd reached his term limit. He's thinking about running again. Clearly, it's part of his plan. He wants a couple things. One, he wants the internal positive press within Russia winning the World Cup so he can get reelected. Um, and then he also wants, if they win, years later, when 2018 rolls around, to have the international PR of being able to show the whole world him, hopefully still as president then, you know, showing himself off in the presidential box at the opening match and the finishing match and being the, the center of the universe. So he sees it as an expensive but what worth it PR move, and there's really not an interest in making money. That's their calculus. So you have England who wants to make money, Russia that wants to, sh- to use soft power around the world. So at this point, there's, there's, there are so few people that actually know, uh, when we go back to this, the, when Steele mentions this, uh, the stuff going on with the FB, to the FBI uh, with the World Cup and FIFA and you know corruption. There are so few people that know about this. So I grew up in England and um, I grew up watching and playing soccer. Like that was that was our sport. And uh, and one of the things that was so crazy when I was reading your book is is just how long this corruption has gone on for. Was it is this is this something that has it has been endemic to the sport forever, or is it something that's gotten worse in recent years as the money has has grown uh, along with the, the attention the sport has gotten? I mean, it's definitely gotten worse over time, but there is a birth, there's a moment where the, the corruption problem begins in FIFA. Um, so this starts in 1974. 1974 is like an incredibly important moment in FIFA history and sort of modern sports history because FIFA, for the first time ever, elects a non-European president. They elect a Brazilian to run it, this guy named Joao Havelange. Havelange is a successful, um, pretty dirty Brazilian lawyer um, who's running the soccer federation down in Brazil. And he is elected on a, on a, on a very nice-sounding platform, which is, I want to democratize the sport. I want to bring it to the whole world. There's all these sub-Saharan African countries that don't really have the sport. There's all this Asia that doesn't have the sport. There's so much of the world that doesn't have the beautiful game. And I want to bring it to everybody. I, I don't want this to just be a sport for white people, basically. And that sounds great. So he gets elected, and then he finds out that that's really expensive. Getting the sport to the whole world is not cheap. And FIFA doesn't have any money. At this point, FIFA is a small organization with no money. Um, the only money they get is from ticket sales at the World Cup, essentially. And it's just not enough. They have, you know, a few. They, he likes to like to joke they had $5 in the bank when he was elected. So he doesn't have any money. And he's like, well, how am I going to pay for this campaign? If I, a platform, if I don't ever, if I don't pay for it, I'm never going to get elected again. And to the rescue comes um, one of the most interesting guys in the history of sport. His name is Horst Dassler. He was the son of the founder of Adidas, and he was a modern marketing genius. And he says, I, I can solve all your problems. I can get you all the money you want. And, and the Brazilian says, well, how do you do it? And he says, oh, you just, we just bring in the sponsors. Right. And for the first time, they bring in the massive corporate sponsors. And he, the first client is, Coca, is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola becomes the first major sponsor of FIFA. They sponsor the 1978 World Cup, which is like a very controversial World Cup because it's held in Argentina during at the height of the horrible dictatorship in Argentina. And it becomes a basically a promotional event for the dictators and makes them look good. Um, Coca-Cola signed on for that. Adidas, of course, signs on. And then all these other sponsors come in and a huge amount of money comes in. And right after the 78 World Cup, this guy, Dassler, the Adidas guy, is, is in Madrid with this English um, advertising genius who worked with him. And they're 
there's this story about how they're in the bathroom at the at a an event place in Madrid talking about the 1982 World Cup, which is going to be in Madrid. And the conversation comes up, well, should Avalanche, the Brazilian, get a salary as head of FIFA? Should he be paid a salary, you know, to, to justify his life or whatever? And they say, well, we've thought this through and no. The Adidas guy says, no, we shouldn't pay him a salary because that way he'll have free will. What we should do is we should keep his salary at zero and we should pay him a bribe under the table. When we pay him a bribe under the table, then he belongs to us, right? And he will only sell the sponsorship rights to us, never let anyone else in because we'll own him. So that's like the first bribe. That bribe that fi- was about $500,000. That first bribe was the origin bribe that's, that created corruption throughout the sport. So when does uh, um, Sepp, J- Sepp Blatter come in? So Sepp Blatter was already working. Well, he was hired. And so can we just tell people who Sepp is? I, I, I know who he is because I've always I've looked I've always watched him as as kind of like a an evil Scott Pruitt for soccer <laughs> like he's like uh he just seems like the most unsavory uh full of shit uh unethical person that I have seen running a sports league but maybe I'm wrong maybe there maybe he's not as bad as I I mean he's perceive. smarter he's definitely smarter than Scott Pruitt I think a lot of people are smarter he's than Scott Pruitt He's very smart uh, but, but but probably equal ethics maybe? I mean his ethics are questionable um I, and he but he's I think he's he's less interested in, in sort of personal gain and fringe benefits than Pruitt and more interested in power. But I, the parallels are not terrible. I mean, he's a guy who would do anything to get power and to cling to the power and um, doesn't care how many bodies have to, you know, um, be left on the road beside him to get there. That's his thing, right? He'll do, he'll let anyone do anything dirty as long as it benefits his power situation. I, and I, met, I remember meeting with an Englishman once about different stuff. We were talking about Bladder, who I've interviewed twice. And the guy said, what do you think of Sepp? And I said, well, you know, um, he seemed like a really good politician. And this Brit goes, no, 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 you're wrong. He's the best politician on the face of the earth. Hmm. And, and I think in a sense he's right because this guy was running an organization where everyone had a knife out for him and everyone wanted to stick a knife in his back. And for, for 18 years or something, he held that power despite everyone begunning for him. So he had a relationship with Putin, right? He had a relationship with Putin through, through the sport. And he, he came up for the sport, by the way. He was a PR guy, and he worked for, like, watchmakers and things like that. And then he gets hired because of the Coca-Cola involvement in FIFA. FIFA needs a man who's going to be the middleman between Coca-Cola and FIFA, and they hire him. So he's really like a product of the branding of soccer and of sport. And he comes up to the organization through that. He's elected president of FIFA when Avalanche retires in 1998 um, and holds power since then until 2015 when he's forced out of the sport in shame. Um, and he builds a relationship with Putin, uh, you know, th- for many years. And there's many photos of them together, and they have a good relationship, and they're real buddy buddy. So he um, is is known for supporting Russia's bid for the World Cup back in 2010. So going back to that 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 bid for the World Cup from Russia, um, there's a, an amazing story in the book about how, of course, England really should have 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 won that. Uh, Russia's presentation even their powerpoint keeps crashing it's just not they shouldn't have won what kind of uh corruption went into them winning yeah right so that's right they have this they're doing presentations it's like a clown show they can't get the powerpoint to launch they can't it's flat everything there's no star power it's sort of like it's as if they were still in the like the soviet era and it was like some terrible crappy you know movie they made to promote like you know um um, brutalist architecture in the Soviet Union or something. And um, uh, 
what, and so it seems on the surface like there's no chance, but this is what Christopher Steele is seeing, that they're bribing people, or they appear to be bribing people, that they're having, they're, they're on high level making oil and gas deals with other countries that have votes, you know? But it, so they're trading them, you know, they're saying we'll buy more oil, or we'll, we'll buy it at different rates. We'll build a vote. gas pipeline. We'll but like build a, a, a liquefied natural gas system, you know, with you, and maybe you'll vote for us, that kind of thing. They're, um, they, Gazprom, their big company, does a big marketing deal with FIFA. And then another one that's really suspicious is this guy named Roman Abramovich, who is the, who's a oligarch billionaire um, and a very close friend of Putin's and a very p- private figure who's known best for owning the Chelsea club in London, Chelsea FC. Um, uh, he's very private, never goes out in public, isn't seen, doesn't talk to the press. Suddenly he's out there on the campaign trail lobbying the heck out of Russia's bid. And this is very strange. People like Christopher Steele see that as a very bad red flag because that guy never does anything. And suddenly he's out there putting on a suit lobbying for the bid. <clears throat> so everything looks like that the fix is in. And so this is when Christopher Steele calls the FBI guy up again. And um, he says, come back to London. I got I to gotta tell you something else. And so the, the agent flies back to London with a couple other guys, another agent and a DOJ guy, a lawyer, and they meet with him. One of the first things Steele shows the agent is a picture of this, this guy, Taiwan chick we talked about before, with Sepp Blatter. They're enjoying a cocktail, you know, in some Russian nightclub, right? And he says, you remember that guy, Taiwan chick? Well, you should know about this bald guy, Sepp Blatter, too. And then he tells them the story of the, how corrupt FIFA is and how Russia is, is um, apparently trying to, to steal the World Cup. The FBI agent thinks this is fascinating, has never heard of FIFA, doesn't know anything about it. There's a guy who's like an old school New Yorker who's like a New York Giants and a New York Yankees fan and no knowledge of soccer. He flies back to New York, thinks he might have something, <clears throat> doesn't think it's going to be the biggest case ever, just thinks it's interesting. Uh, and um, he finds a prosecutor in Brooklyn in the Eastern District in New York, which is famous for busting mafia, right? So there's two districts in New York, there's Southern District and there's Eastern District. Southern District is the really famous one. It's the one where all the really high-profile cases happen, Bernie Madoff, that kind of stuff. Eastern District is scrappier, um, and it's known for busting the Italian mafia mainly. He goes to them um, because he's got a relationship with them and because he's a mafia FBI agent, or he's the guy who busts the mafia. And this this, uh, prosecutor, young guy, very smart, um, is interested and says, let's do it. But to give you a sense of the priority they put on it, they... The case agent they put on it, which is the day-to-day FBI agent just to run the case, is like a kid. He's barely, he's only been a couple of years in the FBI, and his entire criteria, that his boss's criteria for picking him is he played college soccer. <laughs> he's like, yeah, this guy played college soccer, we'll put him on the case. That would be like putting me on the case. Yeah, right? Yeah. He's like, oh, you you know how to pronounce FIFA. You're yeah. like, you're hired. So that's how the case opens. So there's an, uh, another point in time when there's uh, an IRS agent that starts to get involved. Talk about talk about how that happens and, and what that agent decides to do and and how he becomes a part of the case. Sure. So the case is the case is open. This is in in the um, sort of in the second half of 2010. Um, and sure enough, the vote happens in December 2010, and Russia wins. And um, and this you know is a shock to the English, but to people like Steele or the FBI guys, it's no surprise at all. And they're trying to build this case and. They're trying to build it, but it turns out the Russians are really good, right? When you bribe someone in paintings, for example, it's hard to have a money trail to show, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to find the paperwork to show that was And wait, bad. so what year is this? 2010. 2010. So we're, still, we're not even remotely thinking about Russia and elections and any of those yeah, things at this great, point. It's a great point. I think that it's important to put this in the context of time, right? We, we liked Russia then. We thought well, this was the Russian reset, right? That was when Ob- 
Obama was seen kind of hugging um, Putin. Uh, Putin, right? Yep. Um, they were buddies. Russia says, okay, you know, if you really think sanctions against Iran are a good idea, we'll sign on to them. You know, and the U.S. says, thanks so much. Like, we'll, we'll remove sanctions on you because we like you so much. You know, it's like an incredible buddy-buddy thing happening. And this is before the Magnitsky Act, so everything's just, like, lovely. And what we are totally unaware of is that it's really the first time when what they did with the World Cup is, in a sense, the first signal of the Russia that we're seeing today, right? This is, they're signaling that they are going to be interventionists, that they're going to do whatever it takes to get what, what they are. This is the Machiavellian Russia that wants to assert its dominance and its role in the world. And we are totally blind to it, except for a couple of FBI agents. Sort of no one in the U.S. is even aware that this is happening. Um, and and it's a case that doesn't, it looks really big and in, in after sight. But at the time, it wasn't a high priority case. It wasn't in main justice in DC. It wasn't one of these things where the, where the highest people, Eric Holder, the attorney general at the time, was obsessing about it. This was like a little case like so many others in some far off district. So, so get back to this at the IRS. Yeah. Agent, so. So, so, then it, so, so the case is stagnating, though. It, a year later, they're having difficulty making the case because Russia's good at being dirty. And it's hard to build a case against the Russians because they, they hide things and they don't, keep, they don't make a paper trail and they're smart. <clears throat> And so they're stymied, they're stagnated, stagnated, they don't know what to do. And um, across the country from New York in Orange County, California, there's an IRS agent named Steve Berryman. Steve Berryman is, by all accounts, one of the best IRS agents in the whole country. Um, and he's got an interesting background that, like you, he grew up, he's an American who grew up in England. He, um, his dad was in, in the Air Force, and he was an Air Force brat, and he grew up in, outside of London, I think, um, and playing soccer, and that becomes his favorite sport. And he feels, even though he talks with an American accent, he feels sort of very uh, British in a lot of ways. And he comes back, and he grows up, and he becomes a, what kids did in the 70s and 80s who were good at soccer. Is he was a place kicker on the soccer team, gets like a Division One football scholarship, and when that doesn't become a pro thing, he becomes an IRS agent. Um, becomes a really good one and, and is doing a lot of like public corruption and narco cases, right? Like cartel cases, following the money and busting cartels because he can follow the money trail. One day he gets a Google alert and the Google alert says, oh, it's a Reuters article that says maybe the FBI might be looking into this one American soccer official. There was a leak that led to this article. And so he sees this and something sort of pops in his brain. He says, this is my chance to like do a case that puts all of my skills into the thing I most care about, which is soccer. And so he does some research, and the thing he does, and this sort of the super, I think of it as the superpower that IRS agents has, is he can look at people's tax returns, right? If only he would have looked at Donald Trump's. You know? <laughs> he really ought to. Yeah, I mean, that's right. But, but it, people don't know this. I, FBI agents can't look at tax returns. In fact, very few no, people they can't. Can. And, and you probably know that from your reporting. Yep. But it goes back to, I believe, Nixon, because Nixon used to use people's taxes against them. So they rewrote the laws and made it very hard for anyone to look at IRS information except for IRS agents. And even when an IRS agent looks at a tax return, there's a there's a, a, a thing that's logged in a database to know who has looked at that right. tax return. Right. It's like a very, very strict right. system. That's the thing. If he looked at if he looked at Donald Trump's tax return, everyone in the in the IRS would know it and it would be an issue unless Correct. he had a, a good reason to be doing it. Um, but he did have a good reason to look at this guy's tax returns. So who is this guy? Chuck Blazer. And so this is, is the this is the like the big most colorful character in the story, right? I mean, right in a, in a, in a story which I think is, you know, uh, I'm biased, but I think full of a lot of char colorful characters, like probably the most, right? He's um, about six foot one. So wait, so this is so so Chuck Blazer is. Uh, I'm looking at a photo of him right now, uh, and he kind of looks like. 
the biggest person you may ever see in in, in real life. Is that mm. is that a good description of him? Yeah, he looks huge. He's huge. He's about six one, four hundred and fifty pounds. Huge bushy beard, giant head like of tangled gray curls. I mean, he looks like Santa Claus, but like Santa Claus on steroids, right? And um, he's just he's a guy from Queens. He went to the same high school as the Ramones. Um, and and Paul Simon. And he, and so at Paul. this point, when uh, when the IRS agent starts looking into this, uh, wh- where is uh, Chuck Blazer in in the FIFA world? Yeah, he's far from Forest Hills High School. He's a guy who um, who grew, who got interested in the sport only late in his life when he was a parent and he was like a soccer dad in suburban New York and Westchester County. And he's he's sort of that guy who's like, if I ran soccer, and you're like, whatever, blow hard. Except that he did run soccer. Right? He's the guy who came from cutting oranges in the sideline to ultimately rising up in the ranks until he was a member of the FIFA executive committee. He was one of those 24 guys in that room who would vote on where the World Cup was held. And he, for example, in August 2010, goes to Russia and hangs out with Putin. And there's photos of him high-fiving Putin and hanging out in Putin's office and Putin, like, you know, um, insult, um, excuse me, um, massaging his ego and telling him how wonderful he is, right? This this guy this suburban this guy who guy. just a few years earlier was sitting on the sidelines of his kids soccer right team. that's where that's where he Wild. climbed up and he's a he's a larger he's like a gregarious raconteur everyone loves him he hangs out at Elaine's like the famous New York literary spot um, uh, at least for a certain generation he he's friends with Doctor Ruth um, you know this is his world he has a pet parrot he goes around Central Park on his personal mobility scooter with a parrot perched on his shoulder he's like clownish and ridiculous and over the top on every single level and his appetites and his habits and his taste in women he likes call girls he he's fam- there's one story about him that he has a closet full of expensive evening gowns and when he has women go on a date with him he tells them to pick one out put it on and then after the date he tells them to give the cl- the dress back like he's just <laughs> kind of a he's really a gross yeah. figure an excessive figure um and he's also like and he's done great things for the sport to give the man credit like he he basically created the U.S. women's national team. There wouldn't be a women's national soccer team without this guy. And he helped create the Women's World Cup. And he made Major League Soccer into something viable because he got it its first TV contract. So it's good stuff. The bad stuff is that he's corrupt as shit. He's stealing money left, right, and center. He's skimming money from the thing. He's doing self-dealing contracts to pay him a percent of all soccer revenues. In the end, he's, he's stolen at least $25 million from the game, plus put everything in his life, including his Trump Tower condo, on soccer's credit card soccer also bought him a car soccer bought him an apartment in miami and a condo in the bahamas right everything is on soccer's dime and he's his other thing is he never pays taxes right he doesn't want anyone to know he has all this income. so he hasn't paid taxes in like 17 years he hasn't right? even filed an income tax return and so when this this irs agent um types his name in in the database he comes up with a null set right there's no returns and this is like you know this is like red meat or an irs agent and all he has to do is prove there's income. And he finds, like, Blazer's big mistake because Blazer, um, there was a, some journalist got a hold of a canceled check that was sent to Blazer that no one knew what the check was for. Well, we later learned it was for a bribe, but it wasn't clear from the check. But the bl- mistake Blazer had made was rather than doing what he usually did, which is to mail it to his bank in the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands where they deposit it, he got lazy and deposited it at his brokerage at Merrill Lynch, right? And on the back of the check, which this IRS agency is using a magnifying glass looking at the computer screen... He sees Merrill Lynch in tiny letters. Well, that's like that. That's that's the bingo, other bingo moment because that means he can subpoena Merrill Lynch, and Merrill Lynch 
um, has to comply with a subpoena and also can't tell their client, Blazer, that it's been subpoenaed, right? Hmm. So they can investigate Chuck Blazer and his money without ever telling him and without anyone knowing. And he knows he can do this. Now all he has to do is convince the prosecutor and the FBI agent that let him join the case. So he spends a couple of weeks putting together like a, his own dossier of how he would do the case. And he has no idea how this case is going so far. All he knows is the, the thing he's read in the Reuters article. Yeah, he knows nothing. FBI and IRS don't talk that much, and particularly we're on the opposite side of the country. Yeah, well, I can say from my own reporting, not only do they not talk that much, they disdain each other mostly. They hate each other, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they yeah. miss, particularly, the, I think the FBI... Um, never talks about them. They just pretend they don't exist, and yeah. the IRS misses no opportunity to shit all over them. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he flies. He flies to New York, and he goes, and he basically gets on his knees and begs these guys to let him join the case. And it's perfect for them because they're stuck. They don't. They can't make any. They can't make any headway. And he says, "I can do this, and I can do that. And have you thought about this law? And I can do this, and I can show you how to trace money, and I can follow the money, and all the things that they don't know how to do." So they say, "Great." And he, he signs on, and they say, "Well, have you got anything?" And he says, "Well." You know, um, yes, there's this guy called Chuck Blazer, and, um, you know, I can tell you now that he hasn't filed a tax return in 17 years. And there's like a moment of silence, and they go, let's get him. And they get, and then he puts together the thing, and they consult, they confront him. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. This conversation is fascinating and has me on the edge of my seat in the way that I actually think I need a glass of bourbon. In fact, I'm going to take my Buffalo Trace bourbon that I just recently poured myself with a couple of ice cubes and take a sip right now. Mm. That is delicious and just what I needed in the middle of this podcast. Buffalo Trace's deep amber whiskey has this complex aroma of vanilla and mint and molasses. Every time you take a sip, it has this pleasant sweetness that sits on the end of your tongue. And it's got notes of brown sugar and spice that give way to oak and toffee, dark fruit, anise. It's, it's like drinking a bouquet. It's amazing. The, the whiskey finish is long and smooth, and it has serious depth, just like the Inside the Hive podcast, I would note. Buffalo Trace is a bourbon that you can drink neat, on the rocks, or in cocktails like the Manhattan or Old Fashioned. That is my personal favorite drink, a Buffalo Trace Old Fashioned. I especially love it when they put one of those big, fat ice cubes in there, and you feel like you're kind of back in the 1920s. Not that I've ever been to the 1920s. Anyway... One thing I do know that I've just recently learned is that bourbon is America's native spirit. I did not know this. It has to be made in the United States. It has to have at least 51% of corn aged in new char oak barrels that can't have any additives, any coloring. To be labeled Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, the spirit must be made in Kentucky and be aged a minimum of two years. And I can tell you, when you drink this drink, you can tell all of those things have been applied and have gone into this. It is just delicious. You should follow Buffalo Trace Bourbon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, Buffalo Trace Bourbon. They uh, have a lot of fun. They share recipes and drinks. You can do lots of different things with this whiskey beyond just drinking it, like marinated steak, which I did last week. Um, It's a fantastic whiskey. Uh, It's perfect for listening to a fantastic podcast. So, so let's before you get to the confronting. So let's back up a, a few months. So Chuck, uh, he actually reached out to the FBI on his own for of his own fruition before this because he was upset that he thought there was actual match fixing, which is a whole separate kind of crime. Yeah. Kind of crime. Talk about what happened. Yeah, there. that's a, it's kind of a it's a small detail. I'm glad you noticed it. It's to me it was kind of absurd and ridiculous that he would do this. Someone who hasn't paid taxes in 17 years and who's stealing left, right, and center, taking the risk of proactively calling the FBI. And so it, when he does this, I mean, is he, does he think to himself, like, is he upset that he thinks that people are cheating in soccer? Yeah. 
<laughs> Which like, it's absurd, right? A guy it, who's stealing millions, who's taken bribes, who we later learned took a bribe to, to vote for South Africa to host the 2010 World Cup, a guy who has, took bribes for every tournament he ever oversaw. Um, it's like uh, it, in, in my book, American Kingpin, uh, uh, there's a, a guy who works for uh, Ross Ulbricht, who, who runs the, the dark web, Silver Row website, and, and they're selling drugs all over the world. And this guy has this, this one moment that happens where the guy's really upset because his his teenage kid was like at the playground and someone tried to sell him drugs. And it was like, and they, get, they have this long discussion about how fucked up is it that someone tried to sell drugs to my kid? Like, and it's like, wait a second, you guys sell drugs on the internet. Like, yeah. it's the same exact thing. Exactly. I mean, that's like, it, 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 I think it adds a human dimension to these stories, but also it shows you what impunity smells like, right? Yeah. Like, this is a guy who's a criminal on so many levels and he's morally offended because someone would bribe a referee. But that's what happened, right? So, and I think that actually ties into... Their idea that the that an understanding that their income, their success, their personal success depends on soccer having this wonderful image, and they're terrified that match fixing could undermine that, that they would lose the fans and who are the golden goose, right? The love of the sport from the fans is what keeps the TV contracts being valuable and the sponsorship deals being valuable and all that stuff, and so. Um, he's, you know, he's morally offended because he's heard a report given to him by a, uh, an Australian cop who we, we don't need to get into, but this Australian guy works for FIFA and is a match-fixing obsessive, and he passes... Is there match-fixing going on, or...? There is. It's mostly not at the World Cup level, right? Got There's it. not, uh, you know, the higher... And is it, is it when the match-fixing happens, um, is it... Is it the referees that are doing it, or is it that the goalie will accidentally let a goal in? Or how? the easier, right? As obviously, the way to, you can't match fix someone to win because it's too hard to win, but you can match fix someone to lose. So you can you can bribe goalies, or you can bribe refs. Are the most common ways to do it, right? And um, and it tends to happen at lower levels of the sport because it's cheaper, right? It's cheaper to bribe a, a goalie in a third division team than a, than you know um, um, the star David De Gea, the star goalie for Spain, and so. Um, and so it tends to operate in sort of like Central America has a major max fixing problem because those countries don't have a lot of money and their soccer players aren't played a lot, so it's easy to bribe the players or the coaches. Blazer hears about the about bribing ha- bribery happening at this thing called the Gold Cup, which is a regional competition in in North and Central America, a lot like Champions League in Europe, but just shittier. But the same kind of thing. He's outraged and he calls up the FBI and ha- and when his call gets logged, it ends up getting directed to the because to the case agent on the on the FIFA case that's developing. So the case agent does he know who Blazer is yet? Or Absolutely, because no? he built like an org chart, mafia style of who's who, and and they had a red you know like a red circle around Chuck Blazer's name because he's on the executive committee. If you think about it in mafia terms, he's a capo, right? He's not. He's not the head of the whole thing, but he's like he's like. So a, when this guy gets to the FBI agent gets the call, is he like holy shit? Yeah, he's like holy shit, and they go to and he and he says, ah, you know, he calls him. Oh, Mister Blazer, thank you for reaching out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Let's get lunch, right? And so they get lunch at some. Right, they tried to go to the Palm apparently, but it was booked up, so they went to some restaurant in Midtown Manhattan and had lunch. And <clears throat> the FBI agent actually say he was such like a crazy thing. He saved the receipt and like pinned it to his cubicle. Um, and there was some joke about how Blazer refused to pay for the lunch or something. Of course. Um, I got, although, you know, FBI agents, as you know, can't yeah. take that anyway. Yeah. Um, they love, that's like one of their favorite get on the high horse moments is when they won't let anyone pay for anything. <laughs> but, um, but they have his lunch. And of course, he, the FBI agent never says a word about what he's doing. He just uses it as an opportunity to, to sort of observe the guy and see if there's any soft spots. But nothing happens, right? He, they can't figure out how to get him. They don't know the tax information. They don't know how to trace money, really. So they can't figure out the hook to get this guy to talk to them. So, so that's the, so 
they they know who he is. They've, they've targeted him and they're interested in him, but they can't figure out the hook. And what the IRS brings them is like a big giant bloody hook that they can they can drive into his heart. So we now come back in the story to the Trump Tower again, right? Correct. So the IRS agent has this thing, and then they decide, okay, let's reach back out to Blazer. That's right. So they say, let's get him. Let's let's just let's just do it. Let's just confront him. Let's flip, let's try to flip him and see if we can get this case going because we need a cooperator. We we don't understand this world. It's out, mostly outside the U.S. It's completely obscure to us. And so uh, they call him up and they say, hey, we'd love to meet you. And he says, well, I'm out to dinner. Why don't you come uh, to the Trump Tower in an hour or two and we'll meet in the atrium. And he thinks that it's because they're going to ha- they're, they're talk to him about the, the price, the match fixing. Right. And so the IRS agent, this is on November 30th, 2011, which is the night that the Rockefeller Center lights the Christmas tree. So mid- midtown Manhattan is alive with people walking around. And they sit down in this atrium, which is this glass building next to the Trump Tower with like a couple potted trees, palm trees and that sort of thing. And they're sitting at a little round portable table. Just, and, who's, and how many people are there? Very few, right? Because it's nighttime. And yep. it's, it's just, it's getting dark and there's no one really around. It's quiet and they're waiting. And then up pulls like a van and out like rolls a personal mobility scooter and onto it goes Chuck Blazer. And, he and rolls is the in. parrot on his shoulder? I think the parrot was upstairs in his, in his of apartment. Of course, the parrot must have been sleeping. The parrot was sleeping, right. They're daytime animals. And... <laughs> Um, he he goes in and meets them and thinks it's all jolly and happy. And the FBI agent says, I want you to, you know, I see you again, Chuck. Here's my friend, Steve. I'd like to introduce you to him. He's an IRS agent. And when Blazer hears this, I think he goes cold, right? You know, IRS agent, what is that all about? And this guy says, look, I want you to know I love soccer. This is Sperryman. I want you to know I love soccer. I think he calls it football. I love football. I care about it. I want the sport to be better. And I want you to know we're going to make it better. And we're going to start by talking to you. And we want to ask you, first, um, have you ever paid taxes? And second, you know, please take the subpoena because we want every bank account you've ever had anywhere in the whole world. And and Blazer responds how? I think there's like a lot of silence. and ah, and then, But Blazer's smart, right? Blazer, everyone who's ever met him says he's a really smart guy. Um, he has a degree in accounting from NYU, so also um, this is this is pretty Which clear. It's so wild that you have a degree in accounting and you don't pay taxes. You would think that the person who doesn't, who has the degree about the thing, would actually know you can't get away with the you thing. You think, right? But that again, the impunity factor is giant with these people, right? Yeah. And you know, actually, I, I, when I was digging into him, I found that. He's a, he's a perpetual recidivist, non-tax-paying person. In the early 80s, before he was really important in soccer, he um, was in a civil suit because he borrowed money from someone and didn't pay him back. And the guy, it was his neighbor. Like, he borrowed a couple thousand bucks from his neighbor and wouldn't pay him back. The guy sued him, and in the dep- one of the things that came out in the, in the uh, discovery of the case is he had, wasn't paying taxes back then either. Wow. So it was a lifelong problem. Um, and, and it's a fun little wrinkle. But I guess if you're getting bribes, you don't really... Uh, put it down in your uh, in your in, on your tax returns, right? right? And he structured all his income in a way, but it didn't look like he had any income. Like the money he got, the even the quote unquote legitimate money he got from soccer was through a company. He didn't. He wasn't an employee. He was a his company was hired as a contractor by the soccer organization, and it paid a fee for service to the organization, which was housed in the in the Cayman Islands. And he was an employee in the Cayman Islands of this. So there was no domestic money coming to him. And so there was no paper trail. But he very quickly realizes that, you know, the jig is up. I mean, he, because of his degree in accountancy, perhaps, he's like, okay, they've got me. And so they say, you know, you have an option. We can arrest you right now and charge you with this. And the, the statutory uh, penalty is 30, 30 years for all the tax evasion. 
Um, or you can cooperate with the investigation and, and we can go a little easy on you. And um, I think the people involved in the case said he flipped about as fast as anyone's ever flipped. And, oh, I'm sure. You know, within a few seconds, he was Team USA. And so now, he's, does he go undercover? Does he start wearing a wire? Like, what does he start doing? So he, first thing he does, he starts explaining to them what the heck soccer is all about and how it works. And he's the perfect guy for that. Because he's American, so he understands American laws and customs. And because, um, and because he's got a degree in accountancy and because he's been doing it for decades, he knows it all. He can be the guy. He's their um, guide in the desert to walk them through, to, be, to hold their hand and explain to them soccer corruption. And, um, and it's really important. It's critical because all they had really known about was sort of the World Cup bidding shit, right? They didn't know anything about where the real bribery, where the big money in soccer was, all they knew about was the 24 men in the room and that they got bribes to vote for who holds the World Cup, which is a real thing and which they did pursue. But also there's so much more. Blazer was the guy who explained to them all that so much more and explained to them the structure and who responds to who and is the guy that convinced the prosecutor that this was really like a, was going to be run like a mafia case and not just a, uh, like a, a simple bribery case. And so Blazer does that. And the next thing he does, as you've said, was he starts to wear a wire. He starts to make phone, uh, phone calls where he's recording the call. And he even ultimately travels to London and wears a wire at the Olympics. And he's, he's running around London in the 2012 Olympics recording people in fancy Mayfair hotels, trying to get them to say incriminating stuff on tape. And how many, and, uh, how many people did actually say incriminating stuff? We don't know because a lot of the tapes he made have not come out. Um, he met with a lot of Russian guys. We don't really know what happened in those tapes. We do know that he was successful in bringing down um, w at least one incredibly important person in the case. Uh, not a famous person, at least not here in the States, um, but really the next second most important piece of the puzzle, which was a Brazilian guy. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Now is the perfect time to stream the new drama series Succession on HBO. Watch the series The Wall Street Journal hails as scintillating drama and Vulture calls a full-blown addiction. From the incredible Adam McKay, director of The Big Short, and in-the-loop writer Jesse Armstrong, comes the story of one of the biggest media companies in the world and the family that's fighting each other for control of it. It's set in the boardrooms and penthouse apartments of New York City and beyond. Succession explores power, politics, money, and family in the cutthroat corporate world. Succession airs Sundays at 10 p.m., and you can watch the first four episodes now on streaming and on-demand platforms, only on HBO. So right now you're talking about the Olympics, and there was a lot of stuff going on around Russia and the Olympics where this the same kinds of things may have happened so that they could they could get the Olympics um is there overlap between these two stories the Russia Olympic stuff yeah, yeah. I mean look these are all Putin political power projection stories right so Russia got the Winter Olympics for Sochi and um, Sochi's, you know, an awful place to hold the Winter Olympics. It's like the southernmost part of all of Russia. It's like a, it's a summer vacation spot. It would be like holding the Winter Olympics, you know, not quite Miami Beach, but, you know, Hilton Head or something yeah. like that, right? <laughs> um, and, we, and if you recall, there was like no snow. Like it wasn't cold enough. It wasn't adequate. It was a terrible place to have it. Um, but Putin wanted his Olympics, and uh, and that's how it was going to be. And then, of course, we've learned later that Putin also wanted to win at his Olympics, and so he set up this entire doping lab where they were cheating and you know giving false, false urine tests so that the temples so that people they could win. Do you think that um, uh, just jumping forward, and then we'll come back to the to the story? But uh, right now, uh, the World Cup's going on. Is there a chance that Putin is going to try to fix who wins? People are wondering, right? So I don't. 
not entirely sure when this is going to run, this, this conversation we're having. In about two hours. Perfect. So those of you listening today, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, uh, over the weekend, I think on Sunday, we're going to have Spain versus Russia. Russia uh, made it through the group stage of the World Cup, um, and um, uh, everyone thought they were probably the worst team in the whole World Cup, but they, they c- completely crushed their first two opponents, um, and people thought that was very suspicious. Um, they lost uh, fairly solidly to the third opponent, but it didn't. But people point out it didn't really matter because they'd already qualified to get out of the group stage. So no one really took that game very seriously. So now they're going to play Spain, one of the top teams in the world, um, and a team that won the World Cup in 2010. And so people think, you know, um, what's going to happen if they win that match? Well, you know, now we know we know what's really going on. The flip side is if you're the Spanish players. Like, are you, is there something in there's some voice in your head saying, you know, these guys poison people? Oh, like, exactly. Like no, we I mean, that, that literally, I wouldn't sleep the night before because I, 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 w- I would have like headphones on to make sure none of those like radio waves get me. And I mean, it, I, I don't think I would want to actually play there. I mean, the, the stuff that they do is, I, I, I did a story, this issue for Vanity Fair about what Russia is planning in the U.S. for the um, uh, 2018 and 2020 elections. I mean, it's, Scary stuff. Like, they're not messing around. When Putin wants something, he gets something. That's exactly right. He, when he wants it, he gets it. And also, what's, what is like the last eight years of history shown him, including and especially this World Cup? It's shown him that if he does something that's not okay, he doesn't get punished for it. No. There's no repercussion for him. You know, Trump may or may not get in trouble. We'll see. But, Russia, but Putin's not getting in trouble. In fact, he's getting, a, he's, getting a, he's getting a summit with Trump. He's getting legitimately from the U.S. that he shouldn't be getting probably. You know, he, he cheats to get the World Cup because of the World Cup. He cheats maybe get the Olympics and the, they still get the Olympics. And they say that, oh, you can't have the Russian flag at the next Olympics. But they still had athletes there. So it's sort of like, when does this guy ever get punished? And the answer is maybe never. Um, so, you know, I mean, you would think it'd be shameless and ridiculous for Russia to win this World Cup. Yeah. But if it happened, who would really be surprised? Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely true. All right. So let's get back to the to the, the story of your book. And um, so after uh, Chuck Blazer uh, with his parrot uh, flips and starts wearing a wire, how does this all kind of come to a come to a close? Like what do they uh, is it is it all super undercover? Does FIFA know what's going on? No, so it, it's just, it's a it's a super secret investigation, and you know how those kind of things work. In this case, there's a really a huge, maybe an unusually huge degree of uh, secrecy because it's international and because um, uh, soccer gets such press scrutiny in the rest of the world, right? So leaks are a massive problem. I mean, if you're investigating something no one's ever heard of internationally, it's less likely to end up in the press. But they've already had bad experiences where the press in Britain elsewhere is in touch with local law enforcement. And so we talked earlier about this Reuters story that, that got the IRS agent involved. That was a leak um, from British police to um, to Reuters, or actually to another journalist, and so they're they're they become immediately gun shy. The prosecutors and other are like, you know, if we if we ever work with police in other countries, if we do subpoenas abroad, if anything ever leaks about this, it's going to end up in the press because there's so much attention to FIFA elsewhere. So they decide to keep it ultra secret and not even work with uh, police in other countries. So there's a benefit to the fact that soccer is the what fifth most popular sport in the U.S. Correct. Uh, it, there's a benefit that people really aren't paying attention that much. That's right. It, it provides a benefit no one's paying attention, so the case isn't going to be scrutinized. It also provides political cover, right? This case is probably impossible in another country because there's too much political pressure on, on law enforcement to do anything, and there's a history to that, which is there's been 
a very limited number, but a certain number of attempts in other countries to do criminal cases against corruption in soccer, and they've never gone anywhere. In Switzerland, in Brazil, and in other places, these cases never go anywhere because it's just too much of a hot potato. And here, no one cares. No one's going to stop an investigation or mess with it because it's about soccer. If it was about the NFL, you could sort of imagine. Imagine what would happen if the FBI like really went after the NFL. Like, yeah. how many senators would like immediately yeah, of call? Course. Right. Fake news, blah, 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 blah. Right. You know, but so soccer, no one cares. They can operate with that kind of secrecy, uh, with that kind of um, comfort. But because in the rest of the world, they care. They have to be really secret. They're terrified. These guys are going to go to ground. They'll disappear. They go to countries that can't be extradited. So it has to be ultra secret. And they begin um, slowly wrapping up other cooperators. They get this Brazilian who's a huge bribe payer. They get um, a couple of the children of another guy who are corrupt as well, and they start like, slowly wrapping people up and understanding the web of corruption, which is mostly involving bribery paid for TV and sponsorship contracts um, over decades. And um, they, they end up tallying like $200 million worth of bribes. Wow. Um, and the case, um, and they really get into the nitty gritty. And the case, um, which starts in Russia, ends up really being a North and South America case because that's what Blaze, that's Blazer's where his footprint is, that's the world he knows, that's what he can get them. And they end up getting sort of almost every country from the U.S. all the way down to Argentina. They get someone involved who's corrupt. And they build this case showing from the late 80s up until that present day corruption happening in, that, in this hemisphere. So I remember the day that the people started getting arrested. Can you, talk, can you walk us through that day, what, yeah. the, the craziness of it? So May 27th, 2015, um, uh, Europe wakes up to and U.S. goes to bed to, if you're up at you know midnight East Coast time, um, to this takedown at the Baralak Hotel, which is the fanciest hotel in Zurich. It's this beautiful five-star palace um, on, the, on the banks of Lake Zurich. And uh, Swiss police go in at, at 6 a.m. and they uh, start knocking on doors and arresting soccer officials, dragging them out of their rooms and booking them and bringing them to the police station. And these soccer officials has no concept this was coming. None. Completely, no, you know, not prepared. They're there for a FIFA annual Congress. Um, there's going to be election for the for for president. Blatter's going to is up for election again. Um, and they'd been out correct, you know, out doing their fancy five star uh, restaurant type activity the night before, or Michelin star restaurants the night before, and they're you know rudely awakened to discover that they've just been arrested. And this, you know. In the current news environment, in the, uh, things are different. But if you look, think back to how things are 2015, this was the biggest story by far for a couple weeks at a time. And it was like the dominated headlines for weeks. That's all we heard about. It was like a, a bomb. Everyone in the world, that's all they talked about. I mean, press from all over the world is flying into Zurich to cover this story. And um, the U.S. suddenly becomes the hero to the world, right? The prosecutors went to... Went to bed the night before thinking this, you know, they're terrified that they could become villains. Like, why is the U.S. messing with our sport? But instead, it goes the opposite way. The whole world loves it because finally somebody's cleaning up these fuckers who are destroying their sport. And Loretta Lynch, who is at this point had just become attorney general, um, is the hero, right? Like, the whole world loves her. When I traveled in South America to report this book, she was famous. Like, everyone heard of Loretta Lynch. And there's probably no time in history when an attorney general was that famous. But everyone knew who Loretta Lynch was. It was this great success. It was wonderful. And everyone thinks this is great. Seth Blatter, who comically is reelected two days after this, three days after he's reelected, resigns, right? He says, okay, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe it's time for me to go. And he resigns. And people are falling left and right. We don't know this, but people are running to Brooklyn um, to, to flip as fast as they can to get ahead of this steamroller. Um, and it's just it's just picking up speed and accelerating, and it's becoming like gigantic really fast. And so, at the end of it, 
who does, does anyone they, there hasn't been sentencing yet right is that right or two minor kind of guppies got uh, sentenced and but, and everyone else are they are they no longer allowed to work in soccer or they yeah, did so they so there's there's been 42 45 something like that people indicted there's been 24 people convicted um uh most of the others who haven't been convicted it's because they're outside of the country in either fighting extradition or in countries that don't extradite to the u.s um and so those people are unlikely to ever face justice um several companies have pled guilty and have or or uh, signed settlement agreements and have paid a ton of money um and then many many other soccer officials have been pushed out and and um uh, on ethics violations or under investigation. So our buddy Seth Blatter, after saying he was going to resign, the Swiss Attorney General, kind of embarrassed by the U.S. action on their turf, um, announces its own investigation. They started investigating him, um, and um, he's immediately put under best ethics investigation within FIFA, and then he is thrown out of the sport, um, banned for six years. But he's banned for six years, and he can't go to the sport, but yet there's photos of him just today uh, with Putin in... Uh, in, in Russia, Russia yeah. at the game, yeah, so smiling and smirking like. Right, we have a theme here, right? This the theme of this story is like Putin always wins. Well, Putin, I mean, Putin, talk about being like an ungracious host, right? The whole reason that he has the World Cup is because FIFA gave it to him. Well, and he he goes to the opening match with a new president of FIFA, um, but then he makes the takes the effort to invite the disgraced former FIFA president who is banned from quote all football activities and says, "I don't care what FIFA says, you can be my guest." Bladder, all too happy to be back in the spotlight, says yes. And so a week after the World Cup starts, there's Bladder gallivanting around Russia. It's like a, to me, it's like a big middle finger to the entire world. Especially the United States. Yeah, FBI US. agents. Yeah. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. If you've ever had a professional shave from a barbershop, you know how it can change not only how you look, but also how you feel. And it can give you the confidence of knowing that you look great. Now you can get that same barbershop feeling at home with the one blade razor. So they always say, oh, as smooth as a baby's bum. I can tell you using that one blade razor myself that my face feels like a baby's butt. It is smooth. It is beautiful. It's amazing. I don't have any ingrowing hairs or razor burns or anything like that. The razors have been obsessively engineered for the optimal performance of shaving with German stainless steel that's so high grade. I mean, they probably use this on planes or something like that. It's an heirloom quality razor that you can pass down for generation. Each one is hand assembled with a serial number. It's amazing. One of the things they do at OneBlade is they give you a full 60-day money-back guarantee with a lifetime warranty. So if you're ready to have the best shave of your life, visit OneBladeShave.com slash Hive. Try it. Give it to someone. If it's not the best shave of your life, simply return it. Once again, OneBladeShave.com slash Hive. Uh, and so the people that were indicted, uh, are they done from the sport or will they, yeah, they're will all- they find their way back? I think they're all done. They're all out of the sport. Um, there was this big sensational trial on the case last November and December, which I went and covered in Brooklyn. I sat in the courtroom for about six weeks and watched it, and it was a crazy trial. It had it had you know chills and spills and thrills and everything in like between. Like give us a few. So there was a guy from Peru um, who was accused, and he sat there and twice made um, menacing throat slitting gestures to one of the witnesses <laughs> in the courtroom. Um, there was uh, a witness who was asked if um, he was a cooperating witness and he was asked if he had ever paid bribes to public officials. And he says, yeah, I bribed um, 
couple of public officials in Argentina. The prosecutor says, well, what are their names? He says their names. Three hours later, one of those guys jumps in front of a train and kills himself. Oh, my God. Um, there was a, a comical moment in the trial, which was um, the prosecutors in a moment of peak and frustration um, at the defense who refused to stipulate to any facts in the case, brought in one of the Jonas brothers to testify um, as a surprise witness. Um, uh, it's it, 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 the legal details are a little complicated, but essentially, they uh, one of the guys was being accused of taking a bribe in the in kind in form of concert tickets to see Paul McCartney play a concert in Buenos Aires at a big stadium, and the defense attorneys refused not to acknowledge that he took the bribe, but that there even was such a concert, and so. Uh, since they wouldn't stipulate to that, they needed a witness to testify to the fact that there was such a concert. And um, the prosecutors found Kevin Jonas, who was in Buenos Aires that day because he was going to play a concert in the same arena the next day. And Paul McCartney had personally invited him to watch the show. And so the, <laughs> the government goes, the prosecution calls its, the government calls its next witness Kevin Jonas. And out comes the Jonas brother who got in the stand in for about five minutes. And they said, who are you? And he said, I'm Kevin Jonas. What do you do? I'm a musician. Have you ever been to Buenos Aires? Yes. Did you ever see a concert with Paul McCartney? Yes. How was it? It was great. Okay, thank you. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. The yeah. jury was like, what? Uh, that's um, really funny. So that was a crazy trial. And at the end of it, um, two of the three guys got convicted. Um, the third guy, in a way that uh, I think the prosecutors really, uh, really irked about, the guy who made the throat-slitting gestures, he walked and went back to Peru. How did he get away with it? Well, he was unlike the others. He only had one charge against him. The others had many, many charges. He only had one because he um, he had been extradited from Peru, which was also investigating him. Peru was investigating him for money laundering and for um, uh, for fraud. And um, so they said, "We'll only extradite him under condition that you charge him for crimes we aren't investigating." And the only crime that the, U the U.S. was investigating that Peru wasn't was RICO racketeering. So he was only up on a racketeering charge and not the others. And so when the jury looked at these two guys who had seven, eight, nine charges against him against this other guy who had only one. Um, they thought, oh, he must not be as crooked as these other two. Meanwhile, he's doing th throat slitting gestures. Right. But they didn't see it because the jury uh, was, he was very clever and he made the threatening gesture when the jury wasn't in the room. And the complicated rules of trials is that they couldn't, no one could tell the jury what happened huh. when they aren't in the room. So it really, I think it burned the prosecutors to see this guy. That I knows, bet. You know. I bet. Did he, did he end up going, did, did it come to a close in Peru or is he? He's still under investigation, but you know, I mean, it's Peru. We don't yeah. expect anything. Yeah. He can't leave Peru because there's a red notice against him. And so if he ever flies to any other country, he'll get picked up and, and flagged for extradition again. So, um, and I'm sure the prosecutors would be more than happy to go back after him. They would be delighted, right? In fact, they had the opportunity to drop the other charges and they refused, right? They're, they still have those pending. Um, so, that, so that trial happened. Those two guys were convicted and they're scheduled for sentencing in August. And all these other cooperators are waiting for them to get sentenced. The prosecutors want them to be sentenced after the guys who are convicted. So it's likely we'll see a wave of, of sentencings in the fall. What do you think those two guys will get sentenced with? I mean... Um, I think that what they've been convicted on could carry, carry sentences of something like 60 and 120 years. Wow. They're both pretty old, so the contention is one of them is almost certainly going to die in prison, and the other one might. Um, one of them is, I think, 80 years old, one of them is 70. Um, I think, I suspect, I, this is just a total guess, but maybe 10 years might be a number they get. So when you look at the, uh, wrapping up here, when you look at the, the sport now, um, is the putting aside the match fixing that probably goes on on a on a small level and like low division teams and so on? 
is FIFA cleaned up or is it still as not as bad as it was, but is there still this stuff going on? Uh, I think baby steps is the word we're looking for here. I mean, you have a culture that's been gir- dirty for 45 plus years. You, wh- one of the things the U.S. case did is it brought down not one, but multiple successive generations of corrupt people. And because like the mafia, and they write about it sort of elegantly in their indictment, um, these organizations operate in the way that you chop off the head and another head grows up just like the old one. And they these guys saw this in their ga- in their mafia prosecutions in the past where they would they would they would do a big takedown. They'd bust the heads of the mafia organization, and while they're preparing for trial and all the work that takes, another guy's popped up and is running the organization just like before. And they knew this was going to happen with FIFA, and it happened. They brought down three generations. And they knew the next guys were just going to be pretty much as dirty. Um, so I think it, it's going to take a long time. But we've seen some promising signs. We talked about earlier about whether there's any women on the FIFA committee. There weren't, but now there are. By statute, they have to have at least two women on this committee. Um, they changed the voting procedure for the World Cup, so now the World Cup is is, is uh, granted not by this executive committee, but instead by the entire FIFA Congress. And the voting is no longer a secret ballot, but it's a transparent open ballot. Um, things that I think will help a little bit. Um, and we saw that manifest itself on July 13th when FIFA's Congress voted for the 2026 World Cup. And it was um, once again the U.S., this time in partnership with Canada and Mexico, up against a country um, that seemed like it wasn't qualified to hold the World Cup. It was uh, Morocco. Morocco has a GDP that's about the size of the state of Missouri. Um, and they were proposing building nine new stadiums and rebuilding five stadiums to host the World Cup. And you thought that Morocco was going to get it. I thought they were. I mean, I was wrong, egg on my face. I was, I was convinced they would because I thought the one group of people who was angry, really angry at the um, FBI and the DOJ for this case were the soccer officials and Vladimir Putin, right? But other than that, um, everyone else loved it. But these officials, this was their chance to bloody the U.S.'s nose. And meanwhile, all the, you know, the political leaders in their countries, 211 voting members of FIFA, all hate Donald Trump. So this is their chance to, to publicly, you know, neg Trump. Why do they hate Trump? Because, you know, I mean, Trump is not popular internationally, right? Trump, yeah. Trump is... Um, between the travel ban, between calling all of Africa a bunch of shithole countries, all these things, he hasn't made any friends, right? Europe is Ang- Angela Merkel down. Well, he's made one friend, uh, two friends, P- Putin and, uh, and... And Kim, right? And, and Kim from North Korea. Right, So, but fun, oddly, North Korea ended up voting against the U.S. They voted for Morocco. So, hmm. um, so I thought that would happen, but I was wrong because the real reason that everyone... Um, uh, what they really wanted out of the support was money, right? And what the United U.S., Canada, Mexico bid promised was massive profits. We go back to the, one of your first questions in this conversation. They were uh, they were promising a fifteen billion dollar profit off this World Cup in the, in in North America, uh, just giant numbers. And the way FIFA's organized ever since the days of Sepp Blatter and even back to Avalanche is uh, through patronage. Um, so it's the legal bribery, or at least the above the, of le- mm-hmm. the semi-legitimate bribery, which is all of FIFA's money, a big chunk of it is distributed to all the member associations and these annual payments. And if you're Germany or if you're France, 250000 or $500,000 a year is like meaningless. Mm-hmm. But if you're, um, you know, um, Vanuatu or the Mariana Islands or, um, uh, you know, um, Mauritius, well, like no one like hardly even plays the support in those countries. They don't have no facilities and no one takes it seriously. If you're the president of that association and you get $500,000 a year, you can be pretty sure most of that's going into your pockets, yeah. right? So those people love that and they want that money and they vote based on that. And it's telling that about how clean FIFA is, is that when they voted for the World Cup and ultimately awarded it to North America, it wasn't the last agenda item of the day. It was the second to last agenda item. The next agenda item in the final was the new president of FIFA, a guy named Gian 
Gianni Infantino, who's like a clone of Sepp Blatter, um, saying, oh, by the way, uh, before we go, I want to let you know I'm running for president again. Please vote for me in two years when the vote happens. Hmm. And, you know, he's clearly linking the huge amount of money and uh, to his presidential bid because he's saying, I'm going to pay you, you know, all this to, to vote for me. Um, so uh, I, I think there, there are small steps, but we're not there yet. So last question uh, before we let you go is um, when you look back at the story and all the craziness, uh, what was the craziest craziness that you encountered? What's the craziest story? The craziest story I encountered, which I haven't told anyone before. So I'm excited about this one. It's a Russia story. Okay. So when this arrest happened in uh, the bar lock in Switzerland, they get uh, initial arrests are seven people and six of those people get extradited to the U.S., um, and um, all, uh, all of them are convicted, ultimately. Um, uh, one of them is a Uruguayan guy. And something really funny happens with him. He's just as guilty as the others. He was the president of South America's football confederation, soccer confederation, and, and a FIFA vice president. Um, and deeply corrupt individual. Um, uh, but something funny happens. Um, instead of doing what everyone else does, which is to lawyer up with a big New Yorker, D.C., white shoe, fancy $1,000-an-hour lawyer... He hires a little-known podunk lawyer out of Arcadia, California. Um, and this lawyer, um, not only does he not do criminal law, he doesn't even own a passport. And um, he hires this lawyer and through a nephew who lives in Arcadia. And the guy goes to the passport office, gets a, v, gets a passport, and, and goes to Zurich and meets this guy. And um, while he's there talking to his client, trying to determine if they can beat extradition, he goes to the Russian embassy in Bern, Switzerland, and knocks on the door and says, I'm representing this guy, and maybe someone might be interested. And he goes back to his hotel, leaves his card, goes back to his hel- hotel, and there's a blinking red light on the phone in, the, in his hotel room, and there's someone from the Russian embassy saying, yes, please, we really want to talk to you. Well, within a few weeks, he's in the Russian embassy in D.C., and he's back in Switzerland in the Russian embassy, and he's meeting with all these lawyers and consular officials who are talking to him about the case. And ultimately, they expedite a Russian visa for him, and they, f- and they have him fly to St. Petersburg, where he meets with um, uh, Vit- Vitaly Mutko. Vitaly Mutko, at the time, was the Russian sports minister, and he's a lifelong friend of Vladimir Putin. He's now the deputy prime minister of Russia. And Mutko says, we're very well of this case. Uh, very well aware of this case and we know all about it and we really want to help you and we're going to help you and we're going to help you in ways we want to tell you about and we're going to help you in ways we can't talk to you about but don't worry it's all going to work out fine here you know our, our advisors are going to give you a bunch of precedent and legal cases you should look at to help you and you know and let's make this happen and so this lawyer goes back to switzerland meets with his client and goes back to the states um ceases all talks with U.S. prosecutors. He'd been negotiating a plea deal, basically, with them, which is what most of the other people arrested did, is, is pled, pled guilty and cooperated. He stops talking to them, clams up, won't help them anymore. And then, against all expectations, the Swiss judges who are overseeing the extradition requests deny the U.S. extradition requests and approve an ex- a separate extradition request, which is submitted at the very last minute from Uruguay. And the guy is extradited to Uruguay rather than the U.S., where he pleads guilty and is given house arrest and then is released and um, and has never been touched by U.S. prosecution. So how does this, does, do you know what happened? I know that there was an old Uruguayan case against this guy that had been abandoned and not active at all that was suddenly magically resuscitated. And the, the Podunk lawyer, how does he get wrapped up? I mean, like, 
It's, I mean, I, the podunk lawyer. You could write a whole book just on that I little story. I mean, it's a story. crazy story. And the, the podunk lawyer is this guy, a really nice guy, but he went to Southwestern Law School, night school, right? Like he's, I'm not saying he's a bad lawyer, but he's not a high-level lawyer. How does he get involved in this, right? Well, it fits the construct, frankly, of the sort of, um, you know, the useful uh, idiot model of Russian, uh, Russian mm-hmm. intrigue, right? Yeah. You need someone who can, who can do this in a way that, I mean, a, a guy at White and Case, a guy at, at, at Proskauer Rose at one of the big, you know, New York firms is not going to do that. He's not going to meet the Russians in their embassy, but this guy would, right? And, um, and, you know, some people pointed out to me that one, one of the Swiss judges in this panel that determines it um, was a Russian immigrant, or I think his father was Russian. I mean, there's all these things. Who knows what happened? Because no one saw it, right? But, it, it, I mean, the people in the DOJ could not believe they had lost this extradition request. They had spent years building this case. They had a bulletproof case. They had all the work done. The Uruguayans turned in what is essentially like, you know, a couple scrap pieces of scrap paper with handwritten notes on it saying, we, we want this guy. And they win the case. And the Swiss panel's justification for handing him to the Uruguay instead of the U.S. is, well, he's old and Uruguay, he's, his health is at risk and his health chances are better in Uruguay. Well, whoever thought that Uruguay has yeah, better exactly. health facilities? I mean, it is very pretty down there. But yeah. I mean, I like Uruguay. In fact, you know, if things get worse in this country, that's where I'd like to move. But, um, but take, take me with you. But it's kind of an absurd... It's an absurd idea. It does it, it beggars belief, but this is what happened. And um, I, 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 a fun coda to this is the lawyer wrote me about a week ago by email, and he said, oh, you know, um, you should have come to Russia. I just went to the World Cup and had the best time. And it turns out that he was personally invited to go to the World Cup, and they gave him primo tickets to, like, five different matches, and he went with his sons. Crazy. And he sent me all these pictures from, like, the front row of stadiums um, at, like, five different World Cup matches. If I were you, I would not go to Russia. uh ken this has been a fascinating conversation uh the book is red card how the u.s blew the whistle on the world's biggest sports scandal ken bensinger really appreciate you taking the time to come out and talk about this today hey hey, was it i'm really glad i can now i'm going to be glued to the russia game on sunday to see if they win and if they do i'm probably just going to burn anything you touched in my house yeah let's go to uruguay We'll we'll go to uruguay thanks thank you Do you hear that sound? That is the sound of a glass of Buffalo Trace bourbon in my hand. And after that interview, I think I need a sip, which is what I'm going to do right now. Mm. That is absolutely delicious. I followed FIFA and soccer for so many years and had no idea that uh, there was all this corruption going on. Uh, It's sad to know that it went on for so long, but it's also great to know that it also came to an end. And I really want to thank my guest today, Ken Bensinger, not only for coming on the show, but for writing this incredible book. Uh, and I think we should say cheers to Ken, and I'm going to take another sip of Buffalo Trace bourbon. Any excuse, really, for me to have a sip of Buffalo Trace bourbon on the show is is really a, a, a great excuse. Mm. Delicious. Um, did you know Buffalo Trace's amber bourbon has these complex aromas, like unlike any other drink that you can get? It's got this taste with every sip you get vanilla. There's this fresh mint, delicious molasses. It's not smoky, but rather it's sweet, which is exactly how I like my bourbon, with notes of brown sugar and spice that after you take one of those neat little sips, which I'm about to do again, uh, leave toffee, dark fruit, and anise on the tip of your tongue. It finishes long and smooth with serious depth, just like this podcast does every single week. If you enjoyed this podcast and this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. 
please leave a review while you're there. Just leave a review, a nice review. I'm going to have one last sip of this Buffalo Trace bourbon before we wrap up for the day. I actually just finished it there. Um, do you know that uh, Buffalo Trace is a bourbon that you can drink neat on the rocks or in cocktails like the Manhattan or Old Fashioned? I've been experimenting with different drinks with the Buffalo Trace bourbon um, at home. I- I'm still the biggest fan of the Old Fashioned, a nice uh, rind of uh, lemon or orange in there, uh, a big fat square ice cube. Uh, just sit outside after a long day of recording a podcast and um, and just, you know, take it all in and let those flavors sit on the edge of your tongue and take a deep, long sigh of relief that the day's over with a nice Buffalo Trace bourbon. And there's all this fascinating information I've learned about bourbons uh, recently, specifically that uh, that they have to actually, they are America's native spirit. They must be made in the United States with 51% corn. Uh, there's all these rules about char oaked barrels, no additives or coloring. They have to be done in Kentucky to be a real bourbon, all of which, of course, Buffalo Trace does. Uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, here's my last sip for the day. And then uh, and we're going to call it here. Uh Thanks, of course, to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. To my editors at Vanity Fair. Thanks to my sponsors, Buffalo Trace, Mattress Firm, HBO, and Juan Blade. Please support all of them the same way you support this podcast. Uh, check out Buffalo Trace on social media. They're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, they share great photos, recipes, you name it. Um, please support them all in the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. Have a wonderful, safe holiday. Make sure that you travel safely and make sure you listen to this podcast. are watching this video either I'm dead or I'm in a very 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 bad situation she said oh my god I can hear gunshots I can hear men outside where are they what have they done to them are they dead are they not dead there is one suspect her father the sheikh it's Madeline Barron from In the Dark we've teamed up with our new colleague Heidi Blake at the New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world the ruler of Dubai Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.